Well, the cool thing about the moon is you can see it from anywhere. It's a, it's a backyard target no matter where you live. It is so bright, it is impervious to light pollution. So it's, it's a natural target, natural target for uh, astrophotography. Well, it's a quarter million miles away and we've got to look through our atmosphere. So uh, we've got limitations from the, the shimmering atmosphere. Consider that the average lunar crater is about the same size as uh, Jupiter or Saturn. They're pretty small on a telescope. So uh, you got to do some tricks to drag out this detail, and just taking a single snapshot isn't going to do it. Robert Reeves is back in our podcast. He's an amateur astronomer and lunar imaging expert. So if you are into the moon, and who isn't, and you want to take better images, then this is the episode for you. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Robert, it's good to see you, man. It's been a while. It's been yeah, a while it since is. what? When, when was that? We saw last each other. time we saw each other. Where was that? We were in Tucson, Tucson right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while, man. Yeah, it's always that, good that, to see. That's well, where you changed the course of my astronomy. Remember, we were talking <laughs> uh, about the uh, the uh, um, triad filter. Yeah. And you said you wanted to try, and almost at exact same time, a Celestron fourteen hyperstar fell into my lap. And I have been using that thing every clear opportunity with that filter from the middle of San Antonio, Texas, 15 feet outside of my back door, taking deep sky stuff that I couldn't take out in the country with my old rig. So it has completely altered my astronomy with one single filter. That's the, I'm so glad to hear that, but that's the power of true narrowband. When you start getting it down into that three and four nanometer narrowband stuff is in San Antonio, um, right there, you're right there. What an hour from Austin? Yes, and, and that's, um, San Antonio that's one of the most congested area. I mean, it's one of the fastest growing places in the country where exactly. you're at right now. Exactly, and um, I'm doing good to see second magnitude stars most of the time. But I point this thing at a at a planetary nebula, and I'm aghast that I'm looking live at thirteenth yeah. magnitude planetaries well, uh, on on screen using that filter. I mean, it's like planetaries turn into searchlights. And of course, uh, uh, emission nebula, star clusters, they all come through. I can't say it does too good on galaxies because the wavelengths are off. And of course, uh, a reflection nebula, you know, no good at all. But it's, it's just opened up so much for me to do just 15 feet outside my kitchen door, right, right there in my driveway. And uh, it's just utterly amazing. It's, uh, I'm so glad to hear that you're loving it, man. We, we absolutely love it. Um, you know, we've had, we've had a lot of people say that like, Hey, this thing's a game changer. It's completely changed the way I'm doing photography. And you know, you think about it, like with your scope, you're at, at what you have a 14, right? Right. I'm operating at F1.9. F1.9 faster than F2. So you're actually shifting slightly. You're losing some of the light coming in and you're still getting yeah. that much i mean well, granted you have a gigantic telescope at f1.9 yeah getting getting stuff like this oh my god outside the back right outside my kitchen door let's see if i hold yeah. this up the right way orion nebula 
Look More at the, you need to make those prints available. Seen. So our listeners, our listeners can't see what you're showing here, but we've got to make these prints available to people. That's beautiful work. Well, yeah, well, we're well, from uh, San Antonio. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, so Robert, uh, did, you, did you put those in the uh, in the in the folder I sent you? Oh no, I only did okay. moon pictures because we're off right. topic. We're slow. We'll I know we are exactly. The There's no such <laughs> thing with Space Junk but, Podcast, but, but, man. There's yeah, no but, such but, thing. But let me just say though. Let me just say, though, for those of you who are listening, we are making video versions of these podcasts available now. So you'll be able to see uh, what he's holding up. If, and I'll put the yeah. link to all of that in the, in the description box of the podcast. So you can but, see. Yeah. All right. We'll be getting back to the moon eventually with yeah. the telescope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I said, I just yeah, thought something. Is... Let me duck down. Uh, I have been uh, tied up since the last time we, we saw each other uh, building a uh, four-room guest house out in the back lot. And uh, I call it the visiting astronomers lodge, but uh, <laughs> yeah, every That's stick, what it is, right? every every shingle, every uh, bag of concrete, I had to carry out there on my back <laughs> and put this house together. It's about five hundred square feet. Turned out to be so quite wait, a project. So wait, you're you're building an astronomers quarters uh, for people to come visit you? Well, yeah, basically a guest house. And, well, um, you need to get some more triad filters. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah shooting from San Antonio, yeah. that's going to be tough. Uh, there's well, a lot of light I, pollution out where you well, are. Well, I got uh, for Christmas, I got uh, one of the uh, uh, ASI 294 uh, Pro cameras from nice. OPT, of course. And yes, uh, it's just, you know, Katie, bar the door. You know, it's just uh, like, like I've never been able to do before. And I'm so thrilled with it. Well, and it's, I love seeing you do the deep space stuff because, I mean, you you literally wrote the book on, you know, lunar and planetary imaging. Mm. Um, I mean, quite literally wrote the book on it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, to be doing all this deep space stuff, every time you post, I'm always just like, this is amazing. Because I really, when we first started talking about it, I didn't know if you were just going to kind of dabble or if you were going to go all in on it. Now you're posting these incredible images, like the ones for the people that are watching that you just showed. I mean, that, that work wouldn't be possible from a place like San Antonio, even just a few years ago. Exactly. Yeah. I, I used to use the Celestron 8-inch Schmidt camera and uh, back in the film days using a hyper tech pan. And uh, I thought my, uh, thought, thought my, uh, <laughs> my deep sky days with that kind of photography were over, but my God, now we're doing it in color from right outside the back door. So uh, how long are uh, your exposures? Um, well, with the uh, ASI 294, I'm typically going about two minutes on each exposure and, and going anywhere from, uh, uh, I could probably expose longer because that's only at gain 120. Uh, yeah, you're not even yeah. pushing it. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it's just idling along. But uh, That's a great uh, camera, though. Yeah, those those cameras are so clean. 120 out of what? Oh, oh uh, yeah, I, I usually, for star clusters, I'll go a minimum of a half an hour. Uh, for emission nebula, I'll go up until it drifts into a tree. I've got a very No, 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 narrow... no. You said a gain of 120. A oh, gain oh, of 120. 120 out of what? Oh, oh uh, I'm not sure what the max is, but uh, the... Uh, yeah, I don't know the uh, top end of those either. Yeah, the ASI But it's basically uh, just, controls... that's like unity gain, right? Right. Yeah, that's, the ASI yes. cameras have low, which is zero, medium, which is 120, and high, okay. which is 390. But uh, exactly what the maximum is, if you use something like uh, Nina, where you can manually set it, I'm not sure what it is. But, well, that's uh, what I was trying to get to. Where in the gain are you? Are you uh, at Unity? Are you very low. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm still very, very low. low He's not I'm pushing the camera at the capabilities. all. Yeah. yeah, I'm exploring right. the capabilities. Now, why don't you want to go to higher gain? Let's talk about that just a minute. Then we'll go to the moon. I promise. We'll get yeah. there. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> but we it's, started here, so let's go ahead. It's still out there. So gain... Um, 
the game one of you talk about gain in a camera what mm. is it for and what are some optimal settings and can you go too far with gain oh yes obviously uh well when you start seeing the speckly noise you know you've gone too far it's just like shooting with a dslr at too high of an iso and uh the the image just starts to kind of crumble before your eyes just too much uh, uh speckly noise in the image and you can do that by jack the gain up too high too. Uh, the cooling of the camera helps. I typically run at minus 15 degrees centigrade uh, simply because uh, that's about as low as I can go indoors doing my dark frames. Um, so I, right. I just so, standardize it and oh, keep yeah, going so matching it, at, yeah. at that uh, uh, under the night sky. Uh, but um, <clears throat> yeah, shooting at ace, uh, I've been in gain of uh, 390. I can definitely see a degradation in the image. Uh, but you can probably town. run live video at that. It, like if for outreach, when you push the gain, I, I, I always shoot super low gain. I mean, when I'm shooting DSLRs, I set it to I just completely bottomed out. I don't even go to Unity gain a lot of times, mm -hmm. which there's no reason really not to. But I just, it's, it's not real light. Uh, I mean, you're amplifying the signal. It's what gain or ISO yep. is doing. You're amplifying the signal that you have. And so if you push it too far, your noise gets very, very grainy. Mm -hmm. exactly. And then, you know, people, people still do it though, because they're like, well, I can run shorter exposures. I don't have the problems of satellites in my images and all that. And there, there are a lot of really powerful cases for that. Um, but you know, I just don't want to deal with all the noise reduction programs and everything afterward to try to get it back to what Clean it could have been if you just did a slightly much better exposure. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And and not all gains are created equal. Some, cam no, some cameras are have amplifiers that are super noisy. You don't want to push them at all. And other ones are, yeah. are much higher quality. A to D converters are better. And so they can they can uh, go to a higher higher value of gain. But it is something you want to keep an eye on. Pushing it too far, you just end up with, 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 with grainy noisy photos too low and you're and you miss out on some signals so it is a nice little yeah. there's a magic number for just about all cameras and this stuff's available people can you know you can google these things and find it we post a lot of it on the opt website but you know when people ask me what they should set it at i always tell them these cameras come set to unity gain mm -hmm. i would just leave it there for the most part and just let it run use your exposure time to actually collect light if you're not having other issues, which for you, Robert, I mean, being in a very light polluted city, I'm yeah. sure you have to work a few tricks, yeah. um, you know, to, to pull out the details that you're getting. But, you know, for most people, I think Unity gains a safe bet. Mm, I agree. All right, cool. But imaging the moon is an entirely different animal. All right. Thank and... you for segueing. Oh, man, yeah. look at that segue. You've done this before. Oh, you're a pro at this, man. Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes. Yeah, I so have a reputation with the moon, uh, and uh, yeah, we need, to, we need to kind of upkeep it. Although for the past year, while I've been very busy building this house, I have not been imaging the moon uh, like I used to, mainly because if I get a good run on the moon for one evening, I'll get between 20 and 40 individual views of the moon, and each one takes about a half an hour to process. And I simply don't have the time now uh, until I get this house built and I can return to normal. So um, I haven't been posting my 365 days of the moon daily moon image for about a year, but it will come back. Uh, thing, things are going to get back to normal. That house is about maybe 95% finished now. We're down to the stage where we got to put in kitchen cabinets and counter and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, it, it's a, a nice little little uh, hacienda out there. And I, I see my astronomy life coming back, particularly since uh, my day job evaporated last year because of COVID. Uh, my 50-year-long career 
just petered out to nothing. So I walked away at the end of December and wow. I'm a free man, except for uh, the work I do for Celestron. I, I help them out with tech help. So, uh, but that's not uh, so time demanding. Yeah, you've, you've been part of the, the Celestron team um, as far as like Celestron imagers for a while now, right? I, I see oh, yeah, it like yeah, AIC. Um, yeah, for some reason they uh, took me under their wing. Um, for some, well, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll have to admit uh, it, it, it's it's uh, an enormous honor, but um, they invited me to be one of the speakers at their perspective conference. Where, well, gosh, twenty thirteen, fourteen, something like that. I think it was around twenty thirteen, where they had a, a big dealers convention and uh, introducing a whole new lineup of products, and. Um, Ever since then, I've, you know, just been part of the crowd, <laughs> and it's yeah. been, been uh, just, just astonishing. It's been uh, a fantastic ride, and I've enjoyed every second of it, um, helping out these people with with their tech help questions. Uh, I was in their boots sixty years ago when I started in astronomy back in the nineteen fifties. There was no place you could go to to get help. Uh, now you can just type out a few words on a computer and somebody like me uh, answers them and gets you back on track. Uh, back in the day, you had to figure it out yourself one way well, or there another. Was, there was Sky and Telescope, or was it just the Sky back then? I can't remember when they became well, Sky, Sky and Telescope. And Telescope. Uh, 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 became, they joined uh, around World War II or so. So okay, in the so 50s, it was, the it was already Sky yeah. and Telescope. Oh, yeah, okay. I started All reading right. Sky and Telescope in 1956, and it was already Sky and Telescope at that time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I started in the seventies, and uh, so yeah, it was. But but then it's also astronomy magazine. But then that was that was the magazine days. That's when you just, mm -hmm. you know, that's about your only real source of information into the hobby. Now right. you've got all kinds of stuff. So yeah. well, all right. Well, with, let's talk about your your lunar observations. Now the moon seems to be in your DNA. This is something that you have been observing for decades. Tell yeah, us exactly why. What is it about the moon that's got you? It's uh, got you hooked. Yeah. Yeah, and hooked. Well, I mean, that... you're you've been obsessed with the moon for decades. <laughs> you've done a lot of lunar work. Yeah, well, more more than most, I'll admit. But uh, back in 1955, <laughs> um, <laughs> back in 1955, uh, uh, Disney had the the Sunday night TV show, an hour long show that was on ABC, I believe, and uh, one of the episodes was uh, a rocket trip around the moon, and uh, it was very well produced. Uh, for the time, although nowadays we look at uh, reruns of it on YouTube and we think, damn, the uh, the cockpit looks just like a World War II bomber. But uh, <laughs> uh, nonetheless, it's what they had to work with back then. Uh, and the, it was a circumlunar flight, Apollo Apollo 8 style uh, around the moon flight. And um, they went behind the moon. And of course, it was dark dark side of the moon. Never mind that you could fly around the moon when the back side of the moon was sunlit, but in the movie they did it when it was dark and they would fire these bright flares and illuminate the unseen back side of the moon. And then the final <laughs> flare went off. There was a city on the moon. And this of course is a, a, a Disney imagination thing. But in 1955, that, that caught my attention. And uh, that was about the time that the space program was just barely being born. The Vanguard satellite program was initiated and uh, said, well, in a couple of years, we're going to launch a satellite. And uh, finally, we got to that point. Sputnik came along um, 
And then we started reaching further. The Air Force said, the heck with going into orbit. We're going to go all the way to the moon. Tried to launch pioneers to the moon. Pioneer 1, 2 tried to get to the moon. The Army finally made it to the moon uh, with Pioneer, or past the moon with Pioneer 4. And that really riveted the whole thing in my mind. Says, uh, this this just isn't cheesy science fiction anymore. We're getting ready to go to the moon. And soon, and eventually, there's going to be manned flights to the moon, uh, not at this far centuries away science fiction-y period in time, but within my lifetime. Of course, what I didn't realize at the time was that it was going to be a mere 11 years later when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. Things really kicked into gear because of the uh, uh, space race with the Soviet Union, the political space race. But nonetheless... Uh, the push to explore the moon went into high gear. Robotic exploration of the moon with uh, landers and uh, photographic orbiters uh, really got into high gear. And we learned more about the moon in the space of about five years than we had done in the entire previous history of mankind. So uh, I was alive, interested in it at the right time, just to mesh right in with this. And it's just been that way ever since. What an interesting concept that you just brought up too, that, you know, plotted out on a timeline. Like if you plot science fiction, all of humanity's science fiction, you realize we're just not as creative as we like to give ourselves credit for because plotted out on a timeline, there's always a point where whatever piece of science fiction it is, it transitions from science fiction to science. You know, our, our reality just becomes, okay, we, we can do that now. We dreamed yeah. it up however long ago. Now it's just part of our reality. And I think it will be the case with all science fiction. At a certain point, if we can imagine it, it just becomes part of our reality because, you know, we chase oh, it down. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen the uh, little uh, Facebook meme of the Jetsons with all of the uh, futuristic things that the Jetsons were using? You know, work from home, video telemedicine, uh, yeah. uh, the whole nine yards. Uh we do that now. Yeah, it's not science right, fiction in exactly. the future. Cell and much phones, more than was imagined in something like the Jetsons, you know, or, or, or really anything. I think you plot it out. Eventually, it all becomes science. Exactly. But nonetheless, uh, the, the moon grabbed me early on. It was a very big part of our astronomy scene back in the 1960s because the moon was a destination for mankind. It was a target. Mm. It wasn't just this mysterious orb out there that we don't know anything about. Uh, It it was something that human beings were going to go to and soon, and we knew who they were. They were the American heroes, the astronauts. But then we got there and uh, it was suddenly been there, done that, and the moon faded. And uh, that's such a shame um, because we were just on the brink of really digging in and doing good stuff it, and it, it really is especially the reasons too i mean it's like it was stopped you know because of that like you, you talked about the political charge that drove us there but it's like we stopped for all the wrong reasons you don't go you don't achieve this the grandest of all human achievement and then be like all right well that was enough well, we well got a yeah but that's because <laughs> That's because we were going for the wrong reasons, right? We were going yeah, there to be right, Russia, exactly. and and we yeah. weren't going there, or the Soviet Union, and we weren't going there for the thrill of the exploration, for the for the discovery that was prompt, that's that was part of going there. We just went there to beat them, and once we had done it, it was done. Um, yeah. And in fact, it's much worse than that. If you look back, I've read a lot of history with JFK, and he actually 
felt as if, you know, they had won the space race the minute they built the Saturn V rocket, and he didn't really care about going to the moon after that. To him, winning the space race was having the biggest, most powerful rocket. We had done that with the Saturn V. It's a pretty impressive rocket. He actually rocket. was done. I'll give it him is. that. It is. Yeah. Uh, but he It's he a pretty impressive rocket. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And it we needed to be We might have kept going there. if it wasn't for the Vietnam War. That, yeah, if it well, wasn't yeah, for the Vietnam of... War, he might have kept going at a slower pace. Right. And there was a lot yeah, of it's just uh it's an interesting it's an interesting thing you said though, because both of you would have, you know, experienced you know, that that change like you're talking about going from, you know, the sixties, seventies, and I'd say even carrying, you know, into the eighties, mm-hmm. um, that change from where the moon is just a source of like uh poetic information, information for the arts is what it was. I mean, the moon, like we, we dreamed about it and described it, but then it became a point of where that's a destination. It's not a, it's not just a concept anymore. This is a place we're going to go and we're going to bring pieces back and we're going to understand it deeply. Yeah. I've got one of those pieces in my uh, bookcase behind me. Do you, you have a piece (laughs) of the moon with you? Wow. How'd you get that? A lunar meteorite slice. Ah. Yeah. It was given to me at Neef about four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, right. that is. Anyway, that's awesome. Yeah, and you the, know the, what's the funny? We we met you at dinner. You remember that dinner we did in? Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. We were in that, New York. That, yeah, yeah. We were at the uh, Airmont Diner and with Don Pettit, you and uh, your your yeah. video guy and. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So Monty I was Ouija I was in New York with with Tony, and they called. I think I don't remember if it was uh, Celestron, if it was Corey, the CEO there at Celestron. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who it was that called us, but they were like, "Hey, we just want to let you know we're inviting you to uh, a private dinner, and you're going to meet two legends tonight." And I was like, "You shouldn't call Tony a legend. He, <laughs> he's not even that cool, honestly. Like I'm with the guy right now, so I've met him." Um, and uh, and they were like, "Yeah, you're going to meet Don Pettit, the astronaut, and Robert Reeves." It was like, whoa, we're going to, this is going to be, I told Tony, it was like, this is going to be probably one of the best conversations of our life right here. <laughs> like this well, is going to be any, right up our alley. You're, for anytime this you're at a dinner conversation with Don Pettit, uh, uh, you're, you're in the winning side of things. Uh, uh, it, nothing beats the tales that he can tell. No. Yeah. Well, when you spend a year of your life or more in space, looking back at the earth, I think you're going to have a more unique perspective than most. Exactly. And he, he communicates it so well. He's so, God, I hate to use this pun, but he's so down to earth about everything. Oh, exactly. And he's just like, yeah, he's just such a, he's such a great communicator. We actually just had him on the podcast. Um, yeah, I saw it. It was wonderful. Yeah. He's such a, such a great guy and he communicates things so well and in a way that makes it all accessible for, for all of us that aren't astronauts. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, he, he's one of the better ones at bringing re- the, you know, the reality to space right in your face in understandable terms. Uh, he's really remarkable about that. And it, it, it's, it's yeah. really uh, amazing to have him as a beer drinking buddy. Yeah. Well, you two have become close, right? Yeah. We've known each other since before he flew in space. Uh, he, well, and he, he let you shot, shine lasers at him in the ISS. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, that's we, we, that's uh, pretty close. Yeah, we hit him at a range of 800 miles. I think we hold the record for the uh, longest uh, individual beam of light being recognized. Um, from um, space. From from space, yeah. Almost 800 miles away, he saw us. But, uh, yeah, I knew him before, before he was... Uh, while he was still an astronaut candidate, he was interested in astrophotography, and he would talk to me about astrophotography. Uh, then when he was 
uh, rotated from backup crewman to prime science officer on Expedition 6. I said, damn, you're going to be going up to the space station. you got to try doing astrophotography up there. Right. And uh, he uh, thought about it, and he said, uh, he told, told me later, he said that was the craziest idea that he'd ever heard. But the more he thought about it, the more he wanted to try it. So he created that barn door tracker out of all of the leftover IMAX camera mounting equipment As and tried do. it and uh, discovered that, well, I can't do any better up here than I can from my backyard down in Houston. So he turned the thing upside down and named it Down at the Earth and started taking pictures of cities at night and using the tracker to cancel the orbital motion so he could uh, get high-resolution pictures of cities at night. And that created a whole new genre of space photography. And I'm, I'm kind of tickled that uh, uh, it evolved out of an offhand comment that I made from him what almost 20 years ago so yeah it, 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 it i mean think about how how challenging that would be to make a tracker to counter you know the vehicle you're in moving eighteen thousand miles an hour circling the earth every 90 minutes and you want to take pictures of the earth it's like he is like the chuck norris of scientists mm, yeah well yeah. Uh, definitely the macgyver for sure <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just comes up with stuff. He, he's like such an epic individual and um, always so enjoyed curious, the conversations. So curious, so, so inquisitive. Every Just a childlike curiosity that just goes into all facets. I mean, did he oh, ever yeah, tell you where sure. he was when he got the epic phone call saying, if you're still interested in being an astronaut, we'd like to talk to you? No. He was in a he was in an active volcano collecting poison gas samples. Of course he was. <laughs> yeah. Of course he was in a volcano. Yeah, just just like any yeah. other one of us. Where else would he be when he gets the phone call that you're going to be an astronaut? <laughs> of course he was. And then the really so, cool thing is he's active to be potentially one of the ones to fly back to the moon. Now, granted, he's one of the older fellows, so unless they get their act together, uh, he may age out of the process. But it's really cool knowing somebody who is in the pool who might go yeah yeah uh, you've got to you've got to be the person that's willing to climb into an active volcano if you're willing to strap <laughs> yourself to a rocket <laughs> multiple times and yep. shoot it into space like yep. that both russian that and american rockets they found the right guy for sure 100 mm -hmm. percent yeah, he's, well, he's Robert, let's talk about let's talk about lunar astrophotography because right. I, I feel like it's very rare that we get people on that we can really just ask the questions of what should people do if they want to get into taking the types of photos you have, where not just you know the the photos beyond the level of hey, I want to show my friends the moon, but instead I really want to push the boundaries and really see the details and the craters and like the sharp edges and everything, you know, the, the well, Terminator, all that stuff, really yeah, clean. Well, what do you recommend to people? Well, the cool thing about the moon is you can see it from anywhere. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a backyard target no matter where you live. It is so bright, yeah. it is impervious to light pollution. So it's, yeah, it's a natural target, skies, yeah. natural target for uh, astrophotography. And, um, but uh, the actual lunar surface, um, well, it's a quarter million miles away. And we've got to look through our atmosphere, so uh, we've got limitations from the, the shimmering atmosphere. Consider that the average lunar crater is about the same size as uh, Jupiter or Saturn. They're pretty small on a telescope. So uh, you've got to do some tricks to drag out this detail. And just taking a single snapshot isn't going to do it. Uh, the technique nowadays is we use um, a dedicated uh, planetary camera, um, 
most of them are built by uh, ZWO or QHY now, um, small inch and a quarter size cameras that slip into the focuser of your, of your uh, uh, telescope. And they have relatively small fields of view, uh, uh, small chips, so that um, even on a modest telescope like a Celestron 8, <coughs> Um, one of these cameras will typically only image about maybe one-tenth the face of the moon. So automatically, you're getting very high resolution. The The pixels are small. The array is fairly small, typically about oh, 1,200 by 1,800 or so uh, pixels. And you take a video. I typically take between 3,000 to 5,000 frames on a video. And this accumulates rather quickly because these video cameras, USB 3, are uh, uh, accumulating these videos as fast as 60 frames per second or more. Oh, yeah. They, so uh, they it doesn't take long. rip data out. Yeah, you don't need to uh, have super precise tracking. Just generally keep the field of view centered so that the edges of it don't drift out and you have stacking problems. But you collect up this video and uh, run it through a free software called either Registax or Autostacker. Uh, Registax was out first. Uh, it, it got a lot of good press. Nowadays, Which one do you use? I, I, I was going to say, nowadays, I prefer Autostackert. Okay. Uh, it's a, a, a German program, but it is in English. And uh, it will uh, stack all of these images. You can set the parameters to say, uh, out of my 5,000 frame stack, only stack the best 10%. So you're still getting yeah. 500 images. Uh, stack the best 500 images into a single TIFF image, and it will take the best details from all of these, combine them into a higher resolution image, and you export that into Photoshop and further sharpen it and uh, work with the contrast and uh, eliminate artifacts and so forth. And the next thing you know, you've got uh, something that looks like it was taken by Lunar Orbiter. Uh, in orbit around yeah, the moon. Oh, exactly. It really does. It looks like you're there. And I, I agree. I, I like the user interface better on that than I do uh, on Autostacker than I do uh, Registax. Registax is, a, if you don't really, if you've never used it before, Registax is very confusing. Well, I could say the same thing for Autostacker because uh, it's got uh, labels on the steps on the, on the screen. Here's one, here's two, here's three. Uh, what they don't tell you is they're step 2.5. <laughs> and uh, initially, I'm learning was, that right now, as you just said it. I didn't know that either. Yeah, there, there, there is a, uh, a step Things where you have to do some other. Yeah, you have to do other configuring to uh, get it to to work properly. But once you understand these little secrets, and now there's there's uh, video tutorials out. When when it first came out, we were kind of poking along, figuring it out ourselves. But now there's video tutorials out where where it'll tell you everything. Uh, but uh, once you master that, uh, it's a push-button thing. I can take, like I said, I'll go out uh, uh, in an hour of imaging the moon. I'll end up with uh, uh, anywhere from 20, 30, 40 of these videos. Uh, it takes up half my hard drive. Come in with uh, 300 gigabytes of data from one imaging session. And Autostacker Auto has the ability to do batch stacking. So you can set the parameters for the select all of all the videos, set the parameters for the first one. It'll automatically apply that to the others as well. And I just start a processing when I go to bed and they're all finished in the morning when I get up. And then it's just a matter of Photoshopping each individual one after that. But uh, 
there you've got to have a little bit of knowledge about what the moon really looks like. I've seen enormous amounts of really good data on Facebook, for instance, that isn't completely processed. Mm -hmm. There's artifacts in it. Um, there are false lunar features in it that are created by the stacking process. Um, you have to understand lunar geology to some extent to um, know what's real and what isn't. Uh, for instance, a crater smaller than about 10, 15 miles in diameter will not have a central peak. It's just not part of the geologic process of how they're formed. But the stacking process will sometimes create a small dot in the center of small craters, especially in the shadow. It looks exactly like a central peak, but it can't be real. They don't exist on craters that small. So, uh, you know, that and uh, numerous other artifacts like uh, uh, ringing artifacts in black shadows or shadows that are gray. There are no gray shadows on the moon. It's black. So you have to go in and fix all the shadows. It, it's a process, just like doing a deep sky image. Um, you know, Tony Hallis, the, the master of deep sky, once told me that uh, he spends far longer processing an image than he does taking an image of, of deep sky. Well, it's pretty much the same way with a lunar image. Uh, you can take the video in, what, two minutes, collect up all the data, but I'll be tinkering with that image for half an hour on Photoshop, worming out all the false stuff, uh, correcting the shadows, getting things just right, uh, uh, adjusting the uh, 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 the values and shades of the, the lunar surface. So uh, it, it's, it's a learned process, but when you finally finish and get that print printed out, and I, I do my moon pictures on uh, um, a 13 by 19 print size uh, on a large for a fairly large format Canon printer. And when those things crank out of there, the first thing I think of is Lunar Orbiter back in the 1960s when the Lunar Orbiter first started doing high resolution lunar imaging. And I got my hands on those. I think there was about 16 by 24 inch prints that they were, were doing at the time right off the press uh, at uh, uh, the Langley Research Center in Virginia. And at the time I just lived down the road from there. When I was in the Navy, I was at the uh, Yorktown Naval Weapons Station, just you know, almost walking distance from uh, from that facility, and uh, got my hands on a couple of those prints, one of them which is still on my wall up there, if you can see it up, yeah, up in the corner. Yeah, uh, one of the original lunar orbiter prints from back in the 1960s. And uh, that's how I define my vision of the moon. Uh, they were a little bit contrasty because of the nature of how they were transmitted to Earth and processed. But that's my vision of the moon now and how I, I do a lot of my pictures. Uh, some people grouse at me about them being overly contrasty. But uh, I'm trying to show people well, details I don't think they that don't no normally matter what see. You do. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you are, your, your name, I think everyone knows. In, if somebody's talking about the moon and lunar photography, your name is inevitably going to come up. So I think it, if you're not escaping that, oh, well, people have something to say about the way my image is done. Look, I mean, <laughs> people have something to say about the way every image is done, yeah. no matter who it is. And mine look like like that kid's toy that you put all the different color Play-Dohs in and you crank the machine and it just squirts out a bunch of colors. <laughs> like that's that's what my images come out as, you know, intentionally. And so people have a lot to say about my images too. Well, but but your images do show the details that a lot of people don't see. 
the the, the contrast and the uh, 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 the vibrance is there, and, and you can see the individual little swirls of nebula that would escape you otherwise in a more bland, natural-looking print. So there there is advantages to both. Uh, the the moon deep sky um, they can be as much art as they are um, uh, science uh, let me see if I can grab one here I have a friend of mine that just told that not not just but but told me that uh, his his young daughter had bedazzled one of her jackets and it reminded him of my images and <laughs> well, I was like okay well okay. You, you know when Photoshop takes <laughs> off and make makes a wrong turn and you end up with a um, yeah. Uh, Orion that looks like that. Well, it, some people just love this. It's it's an art, and and they're yeah. fascinated by it. Yeah, I like. Although that. scientifically, I wouldn't say that it's, it's the wrong it's, turn. It's, I like that, and it shows it, a lot of the details that otherwise you wouldn't notice or pay attention yeah. to because you know it's got different accents than a normally process, processed image. I, I like that. I think that produce something unique, right? There's a part of this that we have to admit is art. It's not. Mm. It's not just science, and it shouldn't be. And uh, I mean, there's all the photography process. It's not just cataloging. It's artistic. And exactly. so you should pull out the image, the parts of the image that you find artistic value in. Yeah. And it's the same way with observing the moon or photographing the moon. It's as much an exercise in cosmic art as it is in, in science. And uh, um, a lunar observer will soon appreciate the beauty of the moon Mm-hmm. as well as the science of the geology and how all the features interact with each other, how uh, the face of the moon was only created by two forces, either impacts or volcanism. There is no, nothing on the moon was formed by water. Uh, there is no tectonic activity on the moon, uh, unless it's earthquake, or I mean, uh, excuse me, volcanically induced. But um, <clears throat> how all of these um, for two forces interact to create the face of the moon. It, I mean, it it creates something intrinsically beautiful that has affected us for thousands of years. The very face of the moon. We see the the beautiful full moonrise come above the horizon. We see the caricature of the face of the man in the moon. You see the Mari Imbrium is is one eye, and Mari Serenitatis and uh, Tranquillitatis form his other eye, and uh, a couple of other features form his mouth. Uh, that that caricature, the the recreation of a human face, evolved from some of the most cataclysmic events that have happened in the solar system: the collision of worlds, asteroids smashing into the moon, creating these horrendously huge craters on the moon that we now call basins, and then they later filled up with massive uh, floods of volcanism, flowing volcanic uh, uh, liquid rock. And uh, if that isn't a violent origin of anything, I don't know what is. But yet it created this this beautiful rendition of a human face that we see rising above the horizon and how many countless, countless, countless reams of poetry and prose over the years, over the centuries, has that inspired? And... uh, uh, the the moon was a thing of beauty for us long before it was a thing of science, and now the average astron average amateur astronomer has access to instrumentation that we 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 as amateurs can observe the moon at a level that would make the professional astronomer jealous just a generation or so ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we well, you know yeah, Tony. I, Tony has one. Tony has a a twenty inch telescope at his place uh, with yeah, eyepieces there 
Yeah, a Stargate. Like looking at the moon through that thing is like shooting a laser out the back of it. You well, kill a child well, I if you to, tried to share it. I with actually them. wanted to ask about that because you've told us about your cameras and you've and the 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 exposures and the frame rates and stuff that you use to capture all these images with five thousand images down to five hundred mm-hmm. that get stacked into a beautiful TIFF and all this kind of stuff. But do you do you actually look at the moon anymore? And if so, what do you use to do that with? Do you like, do you visually observe with any telescopes? <laughs> well, I'm so used to Does seeing anybody do that anymore? Live. I mean, hello, hello. Is this thing? <laughs> yeah. It's still my favorite thing to look at. So if I'm doing visual astronomy, it's still my favorite thing to, to spend well, time. Well, well, well let, let me tell you the, 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 the strangeness of how it works nowadays. Uh, I have more telescopes than there are days of the week. Uh, I've got two Celestron 8s. I've got uh, 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 an AR-102 refractor. I've got a solar scope. I've got uh, Celestron 11, a Celestron 14. I've got the 20-inch Dobsonian, just like Tony has. I've got a Stargate. Um, oh, nice. You have the same uh, scope. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Do you ever uh, use that on the moon? Yes. and uh, You have since, a, a big uh, blocking filter for it, or not a blocking no, filter. No, actually, I, I put a, a 1.5 uh, Barlow on it and just shot direct. Uh, I was able to use very short exposures. But the, one of the images that I sent Tony for the, for the website was, particularly the one of uh, Lamont, uh, was taken through that telescope. And it's one of the best pictures of the uh, uh, Apollo 11 landing sites that I have. But uh, the point I was getting at is I've got all of these telescopes. Yet I don't have a decent eyepiece. I don't. <laughs> the only the only reasonable eyepiece that I have is, is a, the luminous two inch eyepiece that came with the Celestron fourteen. I put cameras on them on, on everything, and when I'm observing the moon live on the computer screen, uh, it is a very satisfying view to me. I can recognize everything. I can understand everything. I can record it, and I can make the images and. Uh, end up with an even higher detailed uh, image uh, sitting in front of me. And uh, if I uh, mosaic a number of images together, it gets to the point when it's printed out that I have to use a magnifying glass to see the, all the fine detail. So uh, it's, it's I don't just know. A, a, a teleview on a 20-inch scope, pretty tough to beat the view of that. I mean, that is a gorgeous yeah, view of the yeah, it is. Well, this is true, but uh, I would have to cash in an awful lot of spousal permission units to get one Teleview eyepiece. <laughs> Says the guy with 50 telescopes. Yeah, with oh, more there's telescopes. there's a story how those can... Yeah. yeah they're, they're, You're having they're... to build a separate guest house for your telescopes, not friends. <laughs> Come on. Well, my fa- well, you know that's what it's for, storage. Well, my, my that that twenty inch telescope's big too. The thing's like seven feet tall. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it, it it resides in a crate most of the time. I just don't have enough room. The 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 Celestron fourteen's in there on its in its stand, and uh, uh, the eleven is in the observatory upstairs above the garage. There, there's just stuff crammed everywhere. Uh, it, it's a very it's long a very and strange scope. tale how how all of that came into my being. But uh, I'm eternally grateful and. Uh, uh, the stuff I've been able to do with it is just, uh, well, you, you said earlier, I wrote the book on astrophotography three times, the three books for Willem and Bell, uh, astrophotography books for Willem and Bell. And these telescopes and the capabilities that they do nowadays continue to astonish me. And I've been doing this for going on 60 years now. We so, talk uh, about that on here all the time. How right now it's never been easier. It's never been more accessible. And, you know, uh, uh, Tony, you, I mean, you worked in professional science. And so like you've seen the transition of just 
even how amateur equipment, the value of amateur equipment today compared to what was being used just not that long well, ago. A lot of it's even being used in professional observatories. You know that from your, mm -hmm. your pro sales part of it. So yeah, it's like the, the <laughs> there's never been a better time uh, as far as the quality of all the, the instrumentation and the optical systems that are out there um, and how much uh, science that can be done. What the forefront now, it seems to me, at least this is what professionals are mostly interested in, are things like the infrared and radio wavelengths. These are things that they've turned into because the optical has been more, I won't say exhausted, but it's certainly not as useful scientifically as some of these other wavelengths. UV would be great, but you can only really do that from space. So, mm -hmm. you know, telescopes like Hubble right. at all are going to well, be we've uh, always a need for that. Yes. And so, uh, so th there's, there's a lot of crossover between uh, pro and amateur now, but the, what they're doing with the telescopes may be a little bit different, but what they're using isn't so much different, <laughs> you know? Uh, oh, sure. You, there may be some liquid nitrogen cooled uh, infrared cameras out there that amateurs aren't using <laughs> in the program, but that's about it. <laughs> I mean, and maybe some AO systems that are, mm. you know, using some, some lasers that, that, that amateurs can't use yet for AO uh, deformable mirrors, that kind of thing. Those will come for amateur systems. Believe uh, me, the AO they systems will, will next. be online. Yes. But, uh, uh, the, the point I was, uh, started to get to when we, we branch off. It's all too easy. We have such short attention spans in our. No, we don't do that here. We stay on topic, and we are always on a schedule and an agenda. Don't don't mess yeah. us up, Robert. That's right. Don't do that, man. Laser focus. Laser focus. <laughs> Go for it, man. Anyway. Just you can free associate. Go for it. Yeah. Well, well one point I was making uh, a number of years ago at uh, uh, the uh, imaging conference up at. Uh, uh, in Northeast Astronomy, NIAC, huh, senior moment uh, at NIAC, uh, held you know, in conjunction with NEEF, uh, is that today's lunar imaging, you can image the moon with the same quality, if not exceed the same quality, that the original uh, University of Chicago lunar atlases produced by Gerard Kuiper back in the uh, early 60s. These were the definitive uh, atlases first studying the moon prior to going to the moon with Apollo. But the amateur today can get a $2,000 system that will outshoot those right. classic images that were supposedly the best in the world at the time. Uh, one, of, one of the biggest shocks uh, I ever encountered in astronomy is, uh, oh gosh, I guess it was about maybe six years ago. Um, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and I had the pleasure of uh, going over to Ewan Whitaker's house. He was uh, one of the original um, folks who worked at the Lunar uh, 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 Lunar, uh, Lunar Planetary Laboratory in Tucson when it was just opened up back in the early 60s. Uh, he and uh, uh, Kuiper and several others were the ones who created these atlases. So he still had one of them in his possession at his home, and I got to see it for the first time. I'd heard about it for my entire life, known about this atlas since the early 1960s, always drooled over seeing the, the, the secrets contained in this document. And I finally got one in my lap and opened it up, and I was flabbergasted to realize that every single one of those images I would have thrown away in comparison to the ones I have now. <laughs> wow, that's, that's quite... That, that's that quite was quite a shock. 
I mean, yeah. I, I'd, I'd held this thing on an altar all these years, not realizing that things that I throw away out of my own printer are better than what was in that lunar atlas. And I'm doing that with uh, instruments as basic as a 180 millimeter Maxudov. Uh, Skywatcher produces that. Uh, Celestron puts it out as, uh, uh, I think it's called the Celestron 700. 700? So anyway, they're, they're Maxudov. The seven-inch Maxudov that Celestron uh, puts out produces the exact same thing. And uh, it's, it was out shooting the famous Kuiper Lunar Atlas. So uh, we can do Correct extraordinary wrong, stuff. But didn't uh, Patrick Moore also have a famous um, Lunar Atlas as well? Well, yeah. Yeah, there were quite yeah. a few of them. There was the Hatfield Lunar Atlas. The Brits did a lot of these. Um, and... Um, um, of course, the the Rukel Atlas is a uh, is a favorite classic that uh, is still popular today, um, but it's it's uh, not photographic. It's it's hand drawn, but um, yeah, there there there's quite a few of those classic atlases out. Uh, the one that I use mostly is uh, called Virtual Moon Atlas. It's a computer atlas. It's free, completely free. Um, you download the darn thing, and if you get all of the modules that allow higher and higher resolution uh, as you drill into lunar features and finally get down to like uh, uh, you know 50 meter resolution on the moon, it's about a two gigabyte download when you get all of the parts to it, but it's completely free. And it's called virtual. Well, that's a moon 1080p analysis. file these days, so you know yeah. that's not a big deal. So that's that's great. What is the maximum resolution images that we have of the moon right now? Do you know? Uh, well, um, depends upon where they were taken. If you mean from Earth, <laughs> no, or, or... I just mean I just mean the highest in existence. The highest in existence, or, oh, I will bet oh, I you. Guess, yeah, I guess I see standard. what you mean. Yes, yeah, I gotta say, I gotta qualify that. I can't say, uh, <laughs> you know, what's in lunar orbit, right? So, okay, so sure, from Earth, what from are the Earth? highest? Re- yeah, yeah. Um, that's a moving target because. People are doing better and better and better almost on a daily basis. But uh, well, let me just qualify what we consider to be a really good lunar image. Uh, if you can see the central rill in the Alpine Valley and discern it as the squiggly, twisty thing that it is and not just a faint gash. Uh, if you can see uh, a half a dozen or more craters, crater that's on the floor of Plato, you're getting astonishing resolution. Um, oh, good. That's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, they're, 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 those are two good benchmarks. Um, you look around Plato, uh, excuse me, you look around Tycho Crater, yeah, especially at low sun elevations, not not at full moon when uh, the, the Tychonian ray system is splattered all over the place, but at low sun elevations, look real close around Tycho and the surface almost like it's looks like it's rust pitted. What you're looking at are the thousands of tiny little craterlets that were formed by the ejecta that was blown out of Tycho when it was formed about 100 million years ago. And uh, those little craterlets are on the order of a kilometer in size. So if you can pick those things up, you're doing really good. Uh, okay. And the and the dynamic range on the moon doesn't seem very big either, right? I mean, the bright things and the not so bright things are they're they're not so far apart, are they? I mean, yes, you've got shadows, which would be zero mm. because they're 
they're dark and no amount of exposure is going to get anything in the shadows. But the dynamic range of the moon is kind of narrow, isn't it? Yeah, well, in, in a broad sense, yes, but in a practical sense, no. Uh, looking at the full moon, fully illuminated, face on, um, and you're measuring the albedo of various areas, uh, like the uh, the Mari dark areas will reflect you know, seven, eight percent. The highland areas that appear very bright to the eye are actually only reflecting about 30 percent. Uh, of incoming sunlight, but at the uh, uh, smaller phases where we have the sunset terminator, uh, the very low slant illumination of the sun near the terminator, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is the pits, I've been inhaling too much sawdust today, um, uh, the illumination gets down into the fractions of a percent of normal illumination because of the low slant. It, it, uh, illumination is spread out over a uh, broader area of the moon. And uh, plus, at that elevation, you're starting to pick up many, many shadows of, of the individual grains of material on the moon casting a shadow and uh, further darkening it. So along the Terminator, it can become very dark, which uh, we can easily compensate for that with today's cameras, but when you're doing a full mosaic of the entire lunar phase, then you're going to be working Photoshop to the max. Because at that point, you can't overexpose the bright limb of the moon, the part that's fully solar illuminated, or you lose all your detail. You, you, you know, when, when your pixels hit 255 saturation, that's it. There is no more detail. So you've got to deliberately keep those below the saturation point. But consistently increasing the exposure as you go across the face of the moon to the uh, shadow side, it's really rough. So what I do is I set my exposure for the bright lunar limb so that it does not overexpose and then lock it in place and use the same exposure all the way across the face of the moon. And then it's photoshopped to the rescue to bring up the, uh, the really dim region along the Terminator. But uh, with, the, with the stacking of images, um, stacking 500 images into a single TIFF, we've got enormous bit depth there. We've got the detail to work with. We've got the dynamic range built up artificially. So Photoshop will work with it, bring up these very uh, uh, dim areas. Uh, the uh, Photoshop camera raw filter is really amazing. The uh, clarity filter does wonders, bringing up detail on the lunar maria. It'll bring up the little ridges and uh, and uh, uh, dorsa and domes and very faint detail that is, is normally lost and accentuate the shadows and will uh, bring up detail you don't normally see. And, of course, the uh, brightness and contrast and uh, uh, shadows function within camera raw also work extremely well along the dim lunar terminator. So by the time you get finished with everything, uh, putting together a mosaic of... Uh, uh, say, 20, 30 of these small images to create a high-resolution image of the full moon, you can have a very even illuminated print where uh, the highlights on the uh, limb side are just as visible as the details along the shadow terminator. So Photoshop is your friend in this case. And uh, wow, it's, it's just a process, and uh, it's not that hard to learn. Um, People are intimidated by Photoshop, but they have to remember that when we're doing our astrophotos, we're probably only using about 1% of the capabilities of Photoshop. 
Uh, right. And, and yeah, absolutely. Any, for any given project, we're only probably using less than a dozen functions in Photoshop. And that's not hard to figure out. If you can figure out a word processor like uh, Microsoft Word and get it to work, uh, you can figure out Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. 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 I went through that learning curve and I'm doing it now with da uh, DaVinci Resolve, which is a video editor I'm learning as well. So it's just, it's a steep curve, but once you're there, it's, yep. you know, it's, 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 it, and it's also little, little tiny successes along the way help you keep going. Well, before we run out of time, I just got to ask you about uh, lunar eclipses. Um, yeah. When you're imaging those, is there anything drastically different one needs to worry about, or do you pretty much use your same techniques regardless? Whether well, it's a for a lunar eclipse, uh, obviously shorter focal length, because uh, when, say, you put your planetary camera on the back end of a, a Celestron 11, uh, even popping it directly into the uh, uh, a focuser with no Barlow or anything, you're just barely looking at you know, like one Maria on the moon. That's not going to do you much good for an eclipse where the glory is in the entire disk of the moon. Uh, then, you know, long telephoto lenses would probably be a better bet. So you can see the entire moon. And even during the fully eclipsed phase, when the moon is very dim, uh, a longer exposure that will actually show star pattern in the background. Uh, against or behind the, uh, the ready orange eclipsed moon. So uh, telescopic yeah, You have to pull the focal length back, too, to get that context, right? Because if it's just right. just enough to fill up the view, you don't get to see all the stars in the background or any of that. Right. You can't do yeah, that. Like I said, a, a, a regular long telephoto that uh, you would use for wildlife or something uh, would right. probably be your best friend for uh, eclipse like that. Uh, uh, I don't even try to use my Celestrons. They're, they're too powerful for an eclipse because you only see such a tiny chunk of the moon. Um, my... Uh, I get better so you results. use DSLRs too then, oh, yeah. uh, since oh, you're yeah. using telephoto lenses? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've got a Canon 6D modified and uh, several digital Rebels. Heck, I still use a uh, 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 D400 modified camera. And by the luck of the draw, that thing is fantastic. Uh, it really does sweet images, even though it's only the third generation of digital Rebel. So, uh, you know, find something that works. I stick with it. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, um, any so is there um, is there any other advice that you'd like to give people who are thinking about maybe either imaging the moon or just observing it? One of my favorite things to do with the large twenty inch telescope is mm -hmm. I like to get the tiny sliver crescent moons and just watch them go uh, right after uh, sunrise or sunset and just just sort of follow it along. Uh, when I do, that's one of my favorite things to do with that telescope. Uh, what, what about you? What are some of your favorite things to do and what advice would you, would it be any parting pieces of advice you might give? Just uh, consider the moon, your backyard friend and observe it often. It's, it's a backyard object. You don't have to go out in the country. It's not a big deal. Set up your telescope in the garage, leave it there, take it out, watch the moon evolve from night to night. It changes. The moon isn't static. It's not the same ball with holes all over it. I mean, uh, people think of it, oh, it's just a big old golf ball uh, all full of holes. The moon is... is Never is, heard that. <laughs> it's dynamic. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's, it's it changes like. night by night. It'll even change hour by hour if you uh, look along the Terminator and watch closely as the shadows shrink and, and yeah, moves. creep across the face of a crater in the space of several hours as the sun rises. Um, uh, Look at the geology of 
see the 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 dark Mari area and how it's interacting. Uh, look for the uh, the cracks and the reels in the moon. Uh, the, the ridges and the rises. Uh, look at the mountain ranges and notice how they 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 seem to surround the the, the round Maria. Uh, all mountain ranges on the moon are just the rims of large craters we call basins. The entire geology of the moon was created differently than Earth. Only, like I said, only two forces create the geology on the moon: an impact or subsequent volcanic modification. And looking at the features closely and seeing how these interact, um, eventually the moon gains a personality. You begin to understand it and it becomes your friend. It's not just this uh, mysterious orb up there that uh, uh, we, we just don't know that much about. Um, it's not that hard to understand the moon. It's not that hard to become friends with it. You learn, you learn the craters just like you learn constellations in the sky. Once you know where Orion is, where you where uh, Gemini is, Taurus, the sky becomes friendly. It's not so mysterious and intimidating. It's the same with the moon. If you look at it, say, "Oh, look, Plato sunrise." Let, let's let's watch this closely. Uh, you understand these places. You know what they are. They're your observational friends, and uh, yeah. just become friends with the moon with any telescope that you have, because the moon will change before your eyes throughout the entire lunation. Every night, it will be different. It's not the same. So uh, it's a very dynamic target that offers you uh, observational challenges throughout the entire month. That's great. Wow. Okay. Well, Robert Reeves, uh, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us about all your experience with observing the moon. And uh, I, I, depending on how you guys are listening and or watching, uh, there will be a link to uh, the description if it's on Anchor or Spotify or iTunes uh, to where you can go and look at some of the images that Robert has taken. Uh, some of these, um, he's got some high resolution TIFFs in there, some JPEGs posters uh, in there that you can take a look at as well. And uh, I'll put a link to that. Oh, I recommend the, the posters box. for anybody doing any outreach. Yes, good. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. No, no, I was no, going to say I recommend right. looking at the posters. Yes, if, and if uh, you're doing outreach, that's what they're there for. Wonderful. Well, thanks for making those available. And they will be uh, the link will be either be in the description box uh, or of, of the YouTube videos or in the uh, of the podcast episodes. These episodes are starting to get posted on the Space Junk Podcast YouTube channel. So uh, I hope you will check that out on YouTube slash Space Junk Podcast and click on subscribes and all of that kind of stuff. I will also be posting some of these episodes on uh, the Deep Astronomy channel as well, so you can see them there. And all of this information will be there. So Robert Reeves, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us. I, I Good luck with your house. Uh, sounds like you're finishing it up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and San Antonio. It's been fun. All right. And uh, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. And see you guys next week. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.